everyone and welcome back to another episode of Curiosity Killed the Rat. My name is Matt and I'd first like to start this episode by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land from which I am recording from, which is the Noongar people, to elders past, present and future. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Kate. Hey guys, I'm Kate. Uh, I'm a neuroscientist, the regular scientist of this show, but once again we have a guest who I'll get to in a second. First of all, I'd just like to acknowledge that I am recording from Wurundjeri country. Sovereignty was never ceded. Our guest on the show today is an archaeologist, Patrick Morrison. Patrick, we are so excited to have you here. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Who are you? Yeah, hi, hi everybody. Um, yeah, I'm an archaeologist in Western Australia. Um, I'd like to also acknowledge that I'm speaking on Noongar country, um, and I'm going to be talking about work that was done on some other country today, um, the country in Murujuga. Um, so I'd like to acknowledge the Murujuga Aboriginal Corporation for letting us work on their country and being really helpful, and um, the groups that manage Murujuga, the Yabawara, Nalama, Yinjimbadi, Madadunara, and Wongatu peoples. So what sort of work is being done on that country at the moment? Um, so the people have been doing archaeology on Murujuga for a really, really long time. Um, and it's important because um, it's a really amazing place. It's got a lot of archaeology there. Um, but it's also a place where there's a lot of industry and a lot of um, interest in mining and working with the land. So there's a lot of pressure there to make sure archaeology is being done. So things are recorded. Um, the things aren't destroyed without understanding what they are um, and to make sure the area is better understood for things like national heritage listing and um, hopefully world heritage listing um, at some point soon. Oh, fantastic. So, yeah, it's it's an amazing place. Um, have, have you guys ever been up to Murujuga? No. 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 The furthest I haven't spent north, much time up north. Yeah, the furthest north. I don't know, you haven't been any further north than me, Matt. It's only when no, we went no. up to Ningaloo Reef. Um Carnarvon and yeah, well, Ningaloo Reefs above Carnarvon, and but that right, that okay. whole journey, yeah, we didn't quite get as far as Exmouth, um, but yeah, we haven't mm. gone any. Um, I really want I spend to most though of my that time whole in the chunk. South. Yeah, yeah, I've seen all of the south of you know Western Australia mm. and bottom of Australia and Eastern yeah, Australia, right. but I just I haven't seen very much of any of the north half of the country, mm. which. I should fix that when I'm allowed to leave the five <laughs> yeah, kilometer radius of my house, um, which is currently mm. five kilometers is my limit. So mm. cries in Melbourne. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Anyway, but um, no, I haven't been there. I assume it's gorgeous though. Like, yeah. You so know. for people who don't know who aren't from Western Australia, who don't know where mm. things are, um, Marujuga is also known as the Dampier Archipelago. Um, and it's about, it's just out of Caratha, so it's in the northwest mm. of Western oh, Australia. Right. Um, it's right on the coast. So right now it's an archipelago of islands, and um, mm. it means hip bones sticking out. So it's this oh, long kind yeah. of peninsula that sticks out um, of the coast and like way out into the sea, and then there's all these beautiful islands. That's oh. yeah, it's an amazing landscape. For anyone who's ever seen it, they'll be able to remember it really, really quickly. It's it looks like just piles of volcanic rock, just kind oh. of like boulders piled on top of each other in these massive piles um, and they're bright red they're oh these like gosh. wonderful wonderful oh. bright red color 
and that classic quintessential Australian yeah, red. I'm really going to have to Google, like, like, go Google images of this place. Oh, yeah, absolutely um, do. It's iconic. after this. Yeah. Wow. And the super cool thing about the rocks there is that when people scratch them, um, mm-hmm. normally with other rocks, they leave the surface underneath is this bright white. It's like a brilliant oh, white. What? Um, and so what people have been doing for not hundreds or thousands, but tens of thousands of years is yeah, people have been right, doing right, art right. in these rocks. Yeah. And so that's why Morajuk so is really famous. Cave paint. I remember I have read something about the cave paintings mm. up there uh, or yeah, the cave. So interesting. Yeah. There's no cave paintings. Yeah. Um, and it's not paintings. Engravings. Yeah. Engravings. Yeah. Wow. Um, oh, that's so cool. There's a lot of them. There's over a million, at least. A million oh is God. kind of the lowest estimate. Um, wow. So Dude. people like to talk about it as the most inscribed landscape on earth or it's the place with kind of the largest collection of art on the entire planet that is um, fucking insane i love yeah, australia that's, it's wild that's, <laughs> that's in, the state i live in and yeah. i haven't even heard of this place that's yeah. that's insane that's and absolutely yeah. insane God. the amazing thing is when you're there um yeah a lot of australians don't don't know that it's there but um there'll be people from germany or china walking around and you ask them why they're why they come to visit mm. Mujuga, and they'll say this is this is one of the most important art places for art in the world. Yeah, it's, wow. It's known all over the world, um, but less God. here. Um, hopefully that will change. Obviously it's going for World Heritage Listing. Now that process is happening um, and there's been a new boardwalk put in really recently to kind of show off a lot of that art. Yeah, I was um, going to say how accessible to the public is it? Like, you know, as soon as WA Borders open and I can come visit mm. y'all again, uh, road trip. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Matt, absolutely. like, yes. let's... Do it. Oh, my gosh, yes. I'd love that. Is it, it like, is, yeah. It is accessible. I mean, it's getting more accessible. So there, there's a boardwalk um, where you can walk around and have a look. I think it's about 700 metres. Like, it's a really – I haven't seen it yet, um, but we were there doing some recording before it went in mm. um, to take you through a lot of the art. The important thing is that um, it, it's a culturally sensitive place and it's obviously yeah. owned by the Aboriginal people there. Um, and the Murujuga Aboriginal Corporation manages a lot of the park or um, well, the entire park, mm. um, which is a lot of the area. And so there's a lot of cultural protocols that go with mm. looking at the art. So it's important to make sure you're with an appropriate guide or that mm-hmm. you've done your research and you get your cultural induction through Murujuga. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a lot of people attempted to climb up on the rocks, um, but that no. is culturally inappropriate. Yeah, no. it's, it's come on. No. Yeah, right. Be better. If something else, it like Sorry. just damages like, from, from the the state of just like damaging the rocks and damaging the history. Mm. Like it's it's I don't know, it just kind of seems like a dick thing to do. You yeah. Know? And it, it's and it's something that has kind of only in this recent um recent last few years when people have become aware of kind mm. of like Uluru and how inappropriate it is yeah, to walk on there. To walk on there people, for sure. Yeah, people have become more aware. So it's good to see boardwalks mm. and things going in to kind of move people off the rocks. Yeah. Um, but you can see how it's tempting that people want to go and look at the things. But yeah, just so people know, it's culturally inappropriate to walk up on the rocks. Um, and a lot of the art is zoned. So mm-hmm. you're depending on who you are, you might not be meant to see that art or particularly photograph the art. Yeah. Um, so that's why it's obviously yeah important to go along the appropriate boardwalks or with the appropriate guides who will be yeah. able to bring you through in a culturally safe way. That's so cool. That's definitely happening, Matt, when I'm next over yes, to visit. We're going to road trip it up and it's going to be amazing. I've done plenty of road trips in the southwest, but certainly not enough in the northwest. So. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful country. So I want to I wanna know a little bit about some of, well, you know, the stuff that you did there. Because you, you did, if I'm correct, um, it was your honours thesis that you yes. did, um, you know, based on, on work from this site. Hmm. Um, 
yeah, I don't know if you wanted to talk a little about your your actual honors project and and what you yeah. got to do specifically, um, and some of the cool. Because I want to know, did you get to do the diving? Uh, um, I did not. I was oh, not scuba damn. diving on that trip, unfortunately. I was limited to snorkeling um, yeah, due okay. to my health and safety. Now oh. I can dive up there, but uh, not yeah. Because I saw sad. that it was like a diving related project, and yeah. I was like, oh, I know Patrick does diving. This mm. is like, you know, like the light bulb going off in my brain of like, of course, this is why he, this is what he wanted to, to study. Like, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it just makes so uh, much sense for you. <laughs> yeah, it's and the diving up there is meant to be amazing. So I'm really looking forward to going back yeah. and working there again and getting to work underwater. But the reason we were underwater is a really interesting mm. one mm. and one that people might not have thought about a lot. Um so I was looking at stone tools, mm -hmm. um, so I wasn't looking at the art, but obviously Aboriginal people all over Australia and mm -hmm. indeed humans everywhere in the world have mm -hmm. been using stone tools for an incredibly long time. Mm -hmm. About three and a half million years is probably the best yeah, okay. estimate. Just, um, a, just a little little bit of time. <laughs> yeah, it's a kind of staple as a species. Mm -hmm. And so it's different in all sorts of parts of the world and people have these very different repertoires of stone tools that have changed dramatically over time. Um, so I was looking a little bit underwater in the intertidal zone, which is the area between low and high tide, um, mm -hmm. which is quite substantial in the north. So in the north of Australia, the tides can be like five, eight metres, like mm -hmm. there. It's a really long way. You could walk around places that would normally be eight metres underwater. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. That's wow. actually it's, crazy. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really crazy. It's the same in um, places like the UK as well. Oh, my gosh. There's enormous differences in tide. Because I've, like, heard of places where, you know, like spits of sand and stuff like that mm. where, you know, like in, in high tide, you know, it's completely underwater. But then low tide, you, this land bridge gets created and you can mm. walk across. I've been mm, to places mm. like that. Um, but I didn't fathom that, you know, it could be up to eight metres deep yeah. of water. That's insane. It's crazy. And on Marujuga, mm. it's about, I think the most it gets up to is like a few metres. It's yeah. not quite as mm. much as it can get in, but it is. Um, so I was looking on this like big intertidal sand flat. Mm -hmm. And in, I think it was 2018, there was um, a bunch of archaeologists walking around there looking for stuff. Um, mm -hmm. They were looking for historical things. So stuff related to pearling, um, okay. if I'm not mistaken. And so that obviously this, this place has got a really like long historical history, but a mm -hmm. really long, um, deep history as well. Mm. And so they were looking for historical artifacts in the intertidal zone, but then came across a bunch of stone tools sitting mm. there and went, okay, what, why, why is there stone tools sitting in this area where you clearly couldn't, it wouldn't be comfortable to make stone tools. It wouldn't be comfortable to use them. Yeah. Um, and it looks like a really normal land scatter. Um, and so what my thesis was, looking at was um, if those stone tools were there because of the sea level rising. Mm. Um, and so this is a thing that's really important for Morajuga, which is that in the last glacial maximum, which was at 22,000 years ago or so. So that's um, like the that end was, of the last ice age, right? That's, yeah, the middle of the last ice age. So oh, the, the middle of the last ice age. Sorry, the very yeah. middle, yeah. Um, yeah. So that's all the water around the world was locked in the ice sheets. Um, so mm -hmm. sea levels were about 120 metres lower than they are today. Yeah. So Murajuga, which is now a bunch of islands. Yeah, um, it was once like dry land fully. Yeah, dry land. It was 160 right. kilometres inland. What? It wasn't. Yeah. Holy shit. Oh, that's yeah. like Oh. That's like a trek and a half. Yeah, it's yeah. a long, long, long way. So the... Uh, yeah, the amazing thing is that when you are 120 metres underwater, you wouldn't expect to find like 
a stone tool scatter or something where people yeah, are doing yeah, things yeah. on land. Yeah, but yeah. that's perfectly reasonable because all around the world, sea levels were that low and mm. the Northwest Shelf is really flat. Yeah. Um, so it's this enormous area all around Australia or what we call Sahul when we're talking about that time because it's the Australian mm-hmm. continent connected to Papua New Guinea but never right. quite connected to Indonesia. Okay. Yeah. Um, which is, um, and so, not connected to Tasmania, right? Like Tasmania. No, it was, yeah. Or it was at that point. Because I yeah. think, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think I remember reading somewhere that like Tasmania dropped off um, earlier than Papua New Guinea did. Because that kind of like uh, blew my yeah. mind a little bit. Yeah, it would have been a little bit earlier, I think. Like only yeah, yeah, only a little sense. bit, but yeah. And, and yeah, I was like, like it just years blew probably, my yeah. whole concept of like space and spatial awareness of, <laughs> you know, our country and how it fits into the globe and, you know, mm. what things used to look like when, anyway, totally yeah. derailing the topic here, but that, that no, was. No, no, that's so, it's, it's the amazing, that's why I'm in this is that mm. it's just so mind blowing. Yeah. And the, the cool thing is that a lot of people think of those things as part of the whole like Pangaea or continents moving around. Mm. Yeah. But it's a very, very different process. Like all the continents were in the same place. Yeah. It take like a few meters. They were, but the sea levels were the thing that was lower. So it's a, yeah. it's a really human timescale. Yeah. And to give you guys a bit of an idea on what the timescales are in Australia, at 65,000 years, people arrive yep. or somewhere around it. That's the earliest dated evidence we've got from Majibebe. Mm-hmm in Arnhem Land, in mm-hmm. the Northern Territory. Um, and then going through to 22,000 years is the last glacial maximum. So at, mm-hmm. sorry, at 65,000, sea levels are 80 metres lower. Mm-hmm. Then they kind of drop. Oh, yeah, as um, it gets colder. As... Yeah. And then it drops and drops and drops and then it gets to, it, the ice age is pretty intense and mm-hmm. it drops right down to 120 metres. And then mm-hmm. really, really, really quickly it moves up again. Mm-hmm. So it moves, I think, between 18,000 and 11,000. It rises, oh, God knows, I like Murujuga's 30 meter, thirty kilometers, sorry, from the ocean mm-hmm. at 11,000. So between okay. like 18,000 and 11, mm. there is a dramatic rise in sea level. Yeah, That's where most yeah. of it happens. Wow. And then up until about 3,000 years ago, the sea level has continuously been rising. It got to a high stand probably around mm-hmm. then and went down. So to where it is today. So for like most of the time humans have been walking around this continent, the continent's been much bigger. And at the last glacial maximum, Mm. it was 2.5 million square kilometers bigger. And Australia's only like seven, oh, sorry, 2.1. It was, it's like six or seven million square kilometers now. So So it's like like a third of the crime. Yeah. Like a third of the size. Like a third, yeah. like a third, third more. taken off it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like yeah. that chop off a third, control C, mm. control V. Yeah. <laughs> Is that, so if the sea levels were lower back then, because I know at some point in Australia's history, or at least I've heard, is that we used to have a big inland sea, yeah. right? Because like the center of Australia is actually like lower than sea level. And, like you go out right right into the middle of the desert of Australia and you find like what? seashells and stuff like that. Yeah, I think so that at was... some point in time, no, like, really, there was like a giant. Yeah, I didn't I'm not know sure this. where it fits in in the timeline, especially relative to a period of time where the sea levels around the world were lower. I can't mm. see where the inland sea in Australia fits in in that timeline. Yeah, I'm not an expert on that. I know mm. that I think in much further in the past it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I I'm, I wouldn't put a number. Yeah. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But there is also, um, what is it, in South Australia or in the 
South Australia towards Victoria, there is an enormous thing. I think it's Lake Eyre or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, there is a lake that that does fill in and that's enormous. That is yeah. like the size of a sea. Yeah. Um, and that can like fill in a year and not. So it's, it's amazing to think how much the climate um, and the planet can change so quickly mm. um, even mm. on a human timescale. Um, mm. And that's obviously why we're quite interested in this topic um, as well is because human yeah. response to climate change is never more relevant really yeah, than exactly. it has been now. Yeah, yeah. Can say that 7,000 mm. times. <laughs> <laughs> say it louder for the people in the back. Place. Yeah, I was um, going to say and that, still it'll fall on dead ears. <laughs> I just want to say a little like um, disclaimer there, which is that like, yes, the 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 climate that I'm talking about has changed before, but it's def- it's not on the same scale yeah. as what is like modeled to happen scale. now. Yeah. No, yeah. not at all. Um, and so like sea level will rise a lot faster now. It won't rise as much as it did back then. Mm-hmm. Um, it can't because there's just not there's as no far ice. as I'm aware and not enough ice yet left. So, but it will rise quite quickly. And what we know from back then is that a little change in sea level, just rising a little bit, mm inundates an enormous amount of land. So during mm. the end of the last ice age, mm. people were losing like half a kilometre a year of land. Oh, my gosh. Yikes. Yeah, on the northwest shelf um, because it's so flat and the sea level was rising in what we call meltwater pulses. So like oh. a heap of meltwater will just whoosh into the ocean oh. and then it inundates. So we think, given that was happening over 10,000 years, yeah. the cultures at that time and people all around the world that must have been like such a defining feature of what it meant to live on planet Earth. Yeah. Is that the sea mm. levels, I guess if you're 5,000 years into it, you'd be like, the sea levels always rise. That's yeah, how, that's just what happens. That's just how, that's how the works. land works. Because, yeah, yeah. 5,000 years ago in our history, you know, yeah. that, that was like, that's the still, pyramids. you know, deep within, yeah, pyramids. That's like mm. early recorded human history. It, like, if that was something that was happening all around the world for that amount of time mm. for us, like, that would just be so ingrained in every culture yeah. across the earth. Yeah. And, like, I imagine for many cultures, it, it probably still is, mm. but it just isn't for us because mm. our culture has accelerated so quickly in the last, you know, 50 years, like 100 years, 200 mm. years, you know. Yeah, and that's why we think, like, as archaeologists, um, we love thinking on enormous timescales because mm. a lot of the time when we try to understand what it is to be human or what it is to live on this planet or, like, how the economy or political whatever works, mm. we're thinking on, if we think a long time scale, we think, like, 100 years. The stock market mm-hmm. has been the same for 100 years. It's worked mm-hmm. like this. Or politics is the mm. same, democracy and communism and all of those big ideas. When you've got 100 years but then humans have been around for what, in our current form, 300,000. Mm. Or at 50,000 people were in Australia and there was, mm. what, four other human species walking around the planet. Yeah, yeah. that blows my <laughs> freaking brain yeah, thinking so about amazing. that. Yeah. Um, and none of them appeared to come to Australia. Well, one of them obviously did. Um, yeah. But the other ones didn't for some reason. Um, and that's something that also um, the, where the sea level was at that time is an important question for that. Yeah, true. Um, oh, mm. interesting. Yeah, probably some people were walking around Indonesia, which was also an entirely different landscape at that Mm. time. Um, So it's really good to think on those big scales because when someone says, we're just like that, humans are always like that, um, archaeology can come in and be like, yeah, but what's a human? I don't know. Like, we don't even know that. Yeah, I think it was like when the the pyramids were built, there were still woolly mammoths and Neanderthals on Mm. the earth. 
Mm, almost. I, almost. Well, not really. Not, so not the, quite that. I think, I think yeah. maybe not the Neanderthals, but I did believe that I read something about the pyramids of the mammoths. Like mm. there was still megafauna mm. around at those, um, that mm. particular era of human civilization. Yeah, right. I think. I, think. I mean... I mean, look, I, yeah. I'm, I'm, I haven't fact-checked this, so take what I say. When, when I'm spitting facts, take, what it, take it all with a grain of salt. I'm just kind of like regurgitating what I watched on a Vsauce video three years ago or something like that, you know. <laughs> fact-check it when you get off. But the point and, is... You know. um, the last... I, I think I've heard know. something about it, yeah, like the last mammoths being on an island somewhere yeah. or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's not like they were that. thriving, like they were sitting <laughs> dying out, but they were still That's how they around. built the pyramids. The mammoths hurled <laughs> the, um, you know, concrete blocks It wasn't aliens, it was Mammoths. Yeah. Come on, guys. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's wild to think. I mean, the, time is weird and oh, confusing. God. I, I that, that is such a 2020 mood. Time is time weird. Time is weird what and the confusing. Fuck? I would like that as a hashtag. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think sharks are much older than trees. Yeah, um, no, that fucks with me daily. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Oxford University is older than the Aztecs. Like, people yeah. don't have a super good idea of what time no, is. No, I am so bad at conceptualizing things in even recent history, let alone yeah. as far I back think, as... Well, like I, One of my favorite ones is like the Roman civilization is as old to us as the Great Pyramids of Giza is as ro- as, are as old to the Romans. Yeah, right. If that makes sense. Yeah. So like what, yeah, the Romans were kind of doing their thing like 2,000 years ago and then like 2,000 years before that was around when the pyramids were built. So when Cleopatra and Julius Caesar were getting it on, the pyramids were already mm. thousands of years mm. old. Mm. Like, yeah, wow. And yeah, and it's Wild. amazing to think that as well, in terms of Australia, when people arrived in Europe mm. and like were living there with Neanderthals, people had already been in Australia for what, 20,000 years yeah. at least. Wow. So the, and that's since like, that's to us, to the last ice age, 20,000 years. Yeah. So people have been in this continent and Aboriginal people mm. Um, mm. have been here for, and this is the thing is that as scientists and archaeologists, we like to say 65,000. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a lot of Aboriginal Australian cultures, um, the, the saying is that people have been there forever. Mm. Um, and that's obviously one that like, as scientists, we can have our version. Mm. Um, and then there can also be other systems of knowledge because really who are you to correct when someone says they've been there forever when really yeah. the planet was a totally different place, mm. even in a scientific understanding. Because, mm. um, like, with science, all we're doing really is making our best guests based on the evidence and the tools that we have around us and just thousands of scientific estimations and things get corrected many years down the yeah. track because we could just discover a new piece of evidence that's like, oh, no, they are actually here 100,000 years before we, but also, we thought they were anyway. You know, measurements based on measuring tools that we have invented as a, yeah. you know, very westernised <laughs> science. Like, science is very, you know. Western. It, and well, Western it, it, culture it, it, has it a habit a lot. of not um, liking other cultures' way of doing things. Yeah. Well, actually, it's super in this in this context with like when people got to Australia, mm. the conventional thinking, and you guys would have heard this, which is that people arrived forty thousand years ago, right? That was like people mm. would always say that people have been here for forty thousand years. Mm. What that was was that radiocarbon dating when something is 40,000 years old it has mm-hmm. like you know it's based on the proportion of different isotopes isotopes of carbon, of carbon yes and so when that number gets to zero 
that's around 40,000 years. Or if you have the like coolest stuff at Anstow, it's about 50,000 now. Right. But so when people were dating these deposits, especially uh, in the Northern Territory, they, they were, were going using 40, a ruler years, 40, that was years, only 40,000 years long. Um, yeah, absolutely. And being like, well, see? It, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, so when they dated it um, using newer methods, yeah. and like dating single grains of sand um, by oh, how long what? ago they were exposed to sunlight. Yeah, no, holy um, crap. Optically stimulated luminescence. So um quartz grains as yeah. well this is i'm not a physicist so I'm no just gonna that's all right through this but, um, i need this though this is my understanding is that quartz grains have like imperfections in them and yeah. electrons get trapped in that that matrix and they yeah. can't get out um until uh light hits them right and then sunlight yeah, yeah, yeah. in particular because it's so high energy and knocks them out and then they accumulate over time so if deposit gets buried then each of those grains of sand, you can tell how long it's like, been. A few hundred years, oh I think. Yeah. Oh Since my god! Exposed to sunlight, and no. so the I good thing about that, that, of that, it's wild. Like, who thinks of that? Yeah, physicists, obviously. That's what we're oh. that, Yeah, um, scientists, man. I love all of them. Like, and so we, as archaeologists, steal their tools. Yeah, and, <laughs> and you can date because of that. You can obviously. There's a lot of sand, like. Mm. Inside of fact, there's a lot of sand in Australia. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pro tip. Just quietly. There's a lot of sand. Just in. Um, Stay away, Annika. <laughs> um, and you can date like hundreds or 200 of these grains in a single site. And if they all give you the same date, you know, mm-hmm. oh, look, that's probably relatively intact. Mm-hmm. And then you can get a date for that. So that's where these older dates of like 55,000 yeah. or 65,000 years have started to emerge. So when I started archaeology in uni a few years ago yeah. um, and I was doing neuroscience with Kate. Yeah, well. um, back in the day. Back in the day. Uh, it was like mid-40s was when people thought people got here really or some 50 yeah. was kind of the consensus. And then it moved to 55 through a discovery at UWA and then it moved to 65 all within the time I did my, my three-year yeah. period of my undergrad. Isn't that crazy? Oh my gosh. Which is crazy. So That just yeah, shows well, was, that it's like... <laughs> It's that makes it such an exciting area of research, though, because you know that you're on like the cusp of like a a very mm. modern, growing like mm. you are. You know that field yeah, is so- growing and learning very, very obviously and tangibly, yeah. and like that would be. So fun to be like in on the ride with. I don't know. It's great. It's hard to write assignments in that um, mm. <laughs> space sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You'll write it and then your examiner will be like, well, actually, last week there was this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's it's good fun. And that was why I'm kind of to segue seamlessly into <laughs> some other <laughs> stuff, which is why we were so excited about um, our work and working underwater. Um, yeah. So my thesis was in the intertidal zone, but the other part of the project that I was on was looking subtidal. Um, oh, cool. And so these were, some of them were about two metres underwater. And under we were able sea. to Yeah. Under <laughs> the sea. Um, and yeah, it was, sorry. It was all, no, that's, it, it's helpful. <laughs> but also not I, sorry. You can see the shirt I'm wearing is covered in coral. So oh, I love I'm, it. I'm on vibe. I love that. <laughs> Thank you. It's beautiful. Um, the, the sites we were looking at were subtitled. So, um, and we were able to demonstrate that those have been there for about 8,000 years after the sea level rose up to put them underwater. And then another one was at 14 meters underwater. But this is cool. It's also kind of the first time in the published literature that anyone's been able to demonstrate that archaeological sites survive on the Australian continental shelf underwater. Oh, no way. Um, Because, so like in Europe, right, there's 
3,000 or something submerged archaeological sites that have been found. Like they dig yeah. mammoth skulls up from the bottom of the North Sea, mm. Neanderthal tools, yeah. like all the time. So it's like um, well known it, that it's a thing that could, it's you know. It's possible, yeah. yeah. And like in the US they're getting burials, like human burials coming from the seabed. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, wow. Incre- like absolutely wow. incredible. Um, yeah. And in Australia everyone, like right from the start of Australian archaeology, they went, mm. well, the time scales that we're dealing with mm. – and the continent that we're dealing with, so much must be underwater. Yeah. yeah. Um, and people have made a lot of theories. There's been a lot of work done in consulting archaeology and some in industry that we obviously can't necessarily access in the published literature. Mm. Um, but luckily, the Australian Research Council funded the Deep History of Sea Country project. <laughs> so um, good. And it was a few years of getting archaeologists and geomorphologists and pilots and rock art specialists and all sorts of people together to tackle this question of where can we find one of these sites? Marujuga turned out to be the perfect place for that. Yeah. And then we found one, which was really, 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 really cool. I want to um, know how. Like, how do you go yeah. about looking for something under 14 metres of water? Like, yeah, it's a tricky question. You dive, right? <laughs> well, you do, dive, but... But, like, how do you know around, where to start, right? Like, yeah. you kind of need to... under rocks and stuff, right? I don't <laughs> just know. go down with a flashlight, you know? A magnifying <laughs> glass. Any clues under here? Are you picturing, like, I'm picturing the scene from The Little Mermaid because, of course, my head's still in The Little Mermaid zone um, <laughs> where Ariel's, like, exploring the shipwreck with her, like, mm. you know, little... little I mean, if we had mermaids on staff, that would have been much easier. (laughs) (laughs) Mermaids would make great underwater archaeologists. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, next time I meet one, I'll I'll make the career (laughs) suggestion. I'll I'll leave them your contact details. Please, Uh, that would be so good. Even Aquaman, (laughs) we're happy with Aquaman. Yeah. Okay. I'll I'll keep it in mind (laughs) next time I see him. Submariner work, that kind of thing, because uh, those things, like, um, kind of like what James Cameron went down Mariana's yeah, right. trench in, you know, those tiny little subs with little claw arms that you can go I, down and move I'm stuff around. Sure. I don't know if those are real or if they're only in movies and video <laughs> no, they're, games. They're super spano, which is the problem. Um, so people what does that mean? In expensive. Sp- expensive. Oh. <laughs> Come on, man. Sorry, I thought that was just like some scientific lingo that I didn't know. No. Wait, wait, wait. Spano. Hold up. I knew a slang word that Matt didn't. This never happens. No, you don't understand. He's always calling me a boomer because I just don't know words that, uh, yeah. Well, there you go. That's a boomer move, not knowing what Spenner means. Yeah, Matt. But um, <laughs> there have been a lot being used in shipwreck archaeology. That is, like, pretty uh, common. Um, but I haven't heard of any being used in uh, submerged landscapes archaeology. I'd have right. to check mm. that. That's so how, how did you find them? Yeah. Because this right, was my so question. Matt, stop. You know, stop stealing stop Patrick away. I need, <laughs> I need my answers because I, I genuinely don't know how you'd go about doing this. And I think it'd be like. Yeah. Sea turtles some, some strapped cool. to your back <laughs> using human hair. Just send them down. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's the really, it's the really, really tricky part of it. That's basically yeah. what the whole project was. Finding a site was like an extra cool bonus. Yeah. But like the whole point of the site was how do we find was these? Looking, yeah. Um, and so we call it predictive modeling. It's something a lot of fields have. Mm-hmm. Um, and in archaeology, it tends to mean looking for where you will find sites. And so there's mm-hmm. lots of ways you can do that. In um, somewhere like Denmark, which has a really well-developed uh, submerged landscape field and has for decades, mm-hmm. what they do is they have the fishing site model. So they look for sites in the bathymetry, so the mm-hmm. seafloor imagery. By Denmark, do you mean the one in Western Australia or the one no, in Europe? The, the one in Europe. Okay. <laughs> one in it's a fair clarification based <laughs> yeah, that, on that yeah. is fair. Um, <laughs> so they have they look for fishing sites and they look for places that, um, as far as I'm aware, would be good fishing spots for good fishing village back in mm-hmm. the day. 
Um, and then when they look at most of those sites, they find evidence of said yeah, fishing wow. villages. Um, so it's a real, like, based on how humans are using the landscape. Yeah. The question not. was, can you apply it to a place like Murujuga or in Australia where you've got mm. a hunter-gatherers? Yeah. Um, or that's obviously very complex. Um, whether or not there are any hunter-gatherers or Aboriginal people or hunter-gatherers is a whole mm. other discussion. Mm. But people, as far as we can tell in Murujuga, most of the time aren't building like like fishing villages or things. We mm-hmm. could be wrong and we don't know that for sure, yeah. but that's yeah. the impression we have. Um, so we're looking for like rock art is one thing, stone yeah. tool scatters, um, and they're not they're things you can do in a lot of places. So mm-hmm. you're not really limited by the landscape you're in. What you do is defined by it, but, you know, you're not, maybe that's not a way to look. Another approach to look is a geomorphological one. Mm-hmm. So it's looking for um, places that probably would survive inundation mm-hmm. or, um, yeah, like are going to preserve or are going to have exposed land services because there's a, mm-hmm. a few things that can happen, right, that mean you won't find a site if there was there. One is that, well, maybe there was just no site. Two is that it can be there but it's under 10 metres of sand or yeah. like um, off Geraldton there's islands called the Abrolhos and there's like 28 metres or something of coral oh, that wow. was um, deposited in the or grew in the Holocene from the last 10,000 years, yeah. which means that if you swim around there you're not like you, you're going to be digging a long way through some really pretty yeah, yeah, yeah. you don't want to do that. Mm. Um, now miss me with that. Or what could happen is that when the sea levels rose, the destructive force of those being in that intertidal zone or the swash zone or even in currents and whatever Would will just destroy it. that site. Yeah. So that's why it took so many, such a big team and such a mm. long project. I was lucky to come on like quite near the end of the project <laughs> um, when we were like getting looking at sites and doing the, doing the fun things. Um, but so much work was put into one, there was LIDAR scanning of the mm-hmm. landscape. So using um, laser ranging. Yeah. Um, yeah, to like look at, to just get a three-dimensional model of most of the islands in the archipelago. Mm. Um, side scan, which is an acoustic technology. Um, so it gives you an image of the ocean floor. I'm oh, using sound so cool. waves. Uh, it's really, really cool. It gives you these beautiful images. Yeah, Matt, you would, really you would easy fuck to with this. <laughs> yeah, I feel, is that similar to like what submarines use for radar and yeah, that yeah. kind of thing, like particularly in the military and yeah. that type of thing? Yeah, no. So they have a, um, a lot of them, I presume, would have side scan on yeah. them to kind okay. of get an idea of the seafloor. It's different to, yeah, it, but yeah, sound waves and sonar, that's all That's all the same thing. Yeah. Um, side scan is when you put it like to the side and you get this beautiful shadow image oh, of whatever's yeah. on the seafloor. Um, and so you look at those and you get all of that and you understand the geology and how landscapes form. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had a wonderful geomorphologist on the project who was able to interpret those landscapes. Mm-hmm. And so you can look at a ridge and see that it's a little bit above sea level now and it's made of limestone and you mm-hmm. can say, look, that's probably been there since the last interglacial at 120,000 years. Wow. Um, and then you obviously have to date that form using like OSL or something. I'm not quite sure how they dated those ones. Yeah, so you date those and then try to build up a history of what the landscape is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the site that ended up being found first was in a place called Cape Brugier. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this channel between two islands that has a lot of sand on it, but also these surfaces that are like Pleistocene. They're mm. from before 10,000 years at least, um, probably 120,000, that are exposed mm-hmm. um, and they're covered in stone tools. Oh, so, wow, that's so cool. And that site oh, wow. was identified by LIDAR. So they oh. knew, okay, there's a spot. Um, you couldn't see the stone tools, obviously, because it's yeah. just not at that resolution. But there was, it looked like there was exposed 
landscape there. Yeah. It looked like it was old enough. It looked like it was calm enough. It was between two islands that you wouldn't expect. Given that like this area is the most active cyclone area in the whole of Australia, like that coast. Yeah. And a cyclone went through like in the middle of the project. Oh, my God. Right before I did my thesis. Like not when we were there, but like in between two field seasons. Oh, no. Um, So it was protected and all of those things together, there was heaps of sites like that and Mm. a lot of them were checked and that was one that turned up. Um, yeah, wow. A, a few hundred stone tools sitting on the um, surface. That's insane. Um, and, That's so cool. Yeah. Um, and then obviously the tricky question is like, was stuff washed in by cyclones and oh, all of that? Yeah, um, yeah. And we think almost certainly not um, just because of how that landscape has formed, the, the fact that everything was like the right age, the fact that there were so mm. many t- tools. And my part of the project was doing some statistics mm. on those um, stones and the size of things and mm. some lithics I recorded. Because you could tell, like, yeah, would you be able to tell, like, that the rock probably came from other, like, you know, they made the stone tools out of something, right? Mm. So did they yeah. make them out of the rocks that are in that area? And is that how you can maybe yeah. tell that it hasn't gone or hasn't been blown in from elsewhere? Yeah. So that's one thing um, we tried there and on my thesis um, mm-hmm. using a geochemical method called PXRF. So again, we've gone to the physicist and stolen something from them. Um, (laughs) And it's called X-ray fluorescence. Uh So you shoot X-rays into a stone or whatever you want to know what chemicals are in it. Um, And then that excites some electrons. They Mm -hmm. jump up a shell, then they fall down a shell. Um, I hope I'm getting this right. (laughs) They fall down a shell. They shoot out light at a really particular frequency. You can detect that frequency. And then by the differences in intensities in those frequencies, figure out how much of different chemicals are in that. Oh, that's um, so cool. It's, it's good fun. Um, oh, my God. So we tried to figure and for my thesis, one of the things was looking at stone tools in the intertidal and going, are they the same? Mm. Um, and I found, like, look, yeah, actually, they're the same as the stuff that's up the slope, so that's not a reason to suspect they haven't rolled in. Yeah, um, okay. It's that's- really hard, but actually all the rocks are pretty, geochemically at least, very similar. Um, yeah. When you thin slice them and look at the structure, they are different, but we didn't do that there because we don't, we didn't have permission, nor did we really want to be cutting up um, stone tools yeah. Yeah. Um, that are important. So that's a destructive method. Um, you use that only when you really, really need to and you have permission. And on mm. my site, no, that, that wasn't a thing we considered. Yeah. Um, so that was an interesting finding, though, um, that actually this it's a cool method. It's got some cool physics behind it. Um, mm. But in this case, the differences you're finding are in things like iron and magnesium, mm-hmm. which are ions that move a lot around in seawater. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, like, it's just weathering you're picking up, really. Yeah. Um, the other thing you can do is look at size sorting. So this is a geomorphological approach or ge- geological probably, like a geological processes approach. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're all, like, if there's a relationship between their size and how deep they are or where they are, mm-hmm. that's a pretty good indication that the landscape is doing something. Um if it's a little bit less reliable, that's a better indication that humans are moving stuff around. Um, yeah, okay. So, like, for example, when I was looking at my the site that I was working on, mm-hmm. um, I would have expected that the more of the smaller rocks would have been washed away, mm-hmm. whereas the bigger rocks would have stayed. That, yeah. I think, makes pretty, pretty logical that sense. checks out uh, by my <laughs> brain. <laughs> and a lot of the stone tools on the archipelago are quite small, like mm-hmm. two to four centimetres is a pretty, mm-hmm. it's, yeah. it's a log normal distribution, but they're mostly two to four centimetres. Yeah, wow. Um, 
in maximum dimensions. Yeah. But these ones in the intertidal zone are like 10, 12, 14. Oh, wow. They're big. So what Chunky sort of boys. Um, I'm not sure. That, uh, some of them were scrapers. Um, but with stone tools, there's a lot of debate over whether or not you can tell what a stone tool does by how it's shaped. Right. Um, and to some extent you can. Some just couldn't be used for some things. But actually what we think in at least Murujuka and one of my friends did his thesis on this mm. um, was that you have to start looking at like what is on the tool, like the residue and the mm. use wear, um, that actually when you try to look at the type of tool by what shape it is, mm. It sounds like you might be able to do it, but not sure. So I didn't go into that. I just avoided that. I was like, no, I'm not going to touch it. Um, There's some obvious scrapers. Like you can see Mm. that they've been used for scraping. Mm. But apart from that, these tools were remarkably multi-purpose. A Mm. lot of them are still sharp, even though they've been sitting underwater for thousands of years. Wow. Um, Stone. What's it going to do? I suppose, you know, they're not getting used. So it's (laughs) not like anyone's weathering them (laughs) That's valid. That's a fair point. I don't know. Maybe maybe the mermaids have been using them. You don't know. (laughs) And that's it. You don't know. Um, And our work indicates that no, no mermaids were using those. Okay. Um, (laughs) So that was another important important strike against the uh, existence of mermaids. There we go. There's science everywhere. I'd say... it's one strike <laughs> in favour of how good mermaids are at, de- uh, you know, not Honing being detected. Yeah. What can um, you say? Mermaids look after their cutlery. Oh. Mermaids are paying attention to Australian heritage laws, which say that you cannot yes. interfere with those sites. Exactly. Yeah, I'd say that every exactly. mermaid, That's what especially it is. if they're living underwater, they'd probably have a whetstone. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, um, so, yeah, we, we, we did that and... I did a lot of stats to figure out like why they were in this, um, like the size profiles that they were in and found that actually a lot of the natural stones around them were quite small. They were, there were plenty of like two to four centimeter stones, Um, but none of them were artifacts. Um, And so a previous work on the site had said that the site wasn't particularly active. Like there's this, this is alluvial fans. So like Mm -hmm. rivers and creeks, probably creeks that come out, um, and that's what people have made these stone tools out of. Yeah. Just okay. like lovely river cobbles. Right. Wow. All over the world, people make stuff out of river cobbles. It's just high quality, nice, mm. easy to work with stone. Yeah. The question was, did it come out of the river before or after it was made? Right. Um, and then after inundation. Mm. And what I found was that actually the beach ridges, so this beach rock, which is like rock that forms on the interface between the land and the sea, um, it's like this limestone sort mm-hmm. of rock mm-hmm. um, that had formed over the mouth of the creeks, didn't stop flow um, oh. particularly effectively, um, was only dated to, I can't even remember, it was so recent, it was like 2,000 years or something, um, oh, 1,700, years whatever. Jesus, give or take Jesus. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sometime yeah. around then. Uh, so like that, it wasn't a really good way to explain that. But mm. what I did find was because the artifacts of that size were gone, but all the other stones there were there, mm-hmm. that there had to be a change in the geological processes at that site between when the artifacts were deposited and when the current natural stones are being deposited. Yeah, so right. So what I interpreted as most likely happening in this site, which is much less certain than previous work, and this is different from the deep history site, which is, much more rigorously dated. But mine turned out to be super complex in that it seems to be constantly these creeks have been relatively active, Mm. but at some point in the past they lost a lot of energy and or like 
it's flowing into water. And when water hits other water, like energy gets pulled out of that system really, really quickly. Yeah. Um, because it's just like hitting a lot of resistance. Mm. So if the sea level came up and these rocks were just like flowing into this, the ocean now, rather than just onto a nice alluvial plain mm. um, or like almost into a billabong, which it would have been, then the energy of the system goes down and the big rocks stay. Mm-hmm and all the artifacts stay as part of those, but all the little rocks become interchangeable. So the little artifacts get shot out into mm. the like sediment and they're replaced by non-artifactual little rocks. So that's why you have this weird mix. Um, but we were also lucky when we did some coring um, to find an, uh, some artifacts down in those cores. Um, oh, no way. So little, little tiny ones, exactly as we thought they would be. Um, we weren't expecting that. We were quite shocked when, yeah. they, when they came out, but it was good to see that they were the right size. Yeah. Um, oh, that's so exciting. Which, of course, you can't draw a lot of conclusions from that because yeah. the sampling means that if you put a core down, you're not going to get a sample bigger than your core. The core, yeah. You know, <laughs> science. Of um, course. <laughs> nah, that, that was a bad one. <laughs> I wasn't proud of that one. That was just a disappointed head nod from me. Um <laughs> I'll take it. I'll I'm take cheering. It. I'm cheering it on. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, I love it. So you were saying like before that this is like, you know, the first time that there's been, you know, this um, hmm. submerged landscapes found on Australia. Hmm. Like why why has it taken us so long <laughs> compared to hmm. like if they've got established, you know, methods and, and things up and running in, in all these other countries and, you know, you were saying that, it was a, it's a really logical thing for Australia, right? Like we, we now as a people, we live around the coast predominantly, like whatever percentage mm. of our current population lives in coastal cities. Like it's, it's hard to believe it makes that sense Australia. That, like, the past people would have as well. Like, yeah. That's what I mean. People in the past were just like, just like us, but yeah, then, so, you know, coastal places are ideal. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So my question is kind of like two part was like, A, what took us so long? But like also <laughs> B, does this mean, you know, that, if all of our kind of archaeological evidence that we have so far in Australia is from inland sites, mm. like maybe did the majority of the population previously live on land that is now underwater? And so do we know absolutely nothing that <laughs> about <is> our- <laughs> how the people actually live? That might That's a very big loaded question. Feel free to... Do what it, do what you will with it, but mm. yeah, I just like I have so many thoughts bubbling in my head hearing about all this. It's like I'm getting these induced. are two excellent, excellent, excellent questions, and this is why I was so excited to do my my project, yeah, yeah. And my thesis on this because I was like, how, what, what? Sorry, yeah. <laughs> a third more of the, but we haven't yeah, looked in like, the what, it's a, what? Surely that's um, where most people were hanging out. If you yeah. know, recent yeah. evidence is anything to go off, which it may not be, but. Yeah. So, yeah, to, to answer the first part of the question, like why haven't people found stuff before? Um, I'd love to say that we were like definitely the first to ever find anything, um, but not quite. Like there, okay. as far as I'm aware, there have been some sites. Well, I, I know for a fact there have been some sites located. Mm-hmm. They're not in like the peer-reviewed literature. They're not all like public right. and haven't been yep. gone through that thing. But like done by good archaeologists, they're, they're, they're some mm-hmm. sites. Um, there's also stuff offshore, which we people also necessarily not ne- can't necessarily talk about, especially if it was found during like any resource stuff. It's right. so, like um, that might all be, I don't know, but I have a sense that there is some stuff that, yeah, it's not in the literature. The yeah. other thing was in Australia, in the Southwest, um, in, there's a site called Lake Jasper. 
um, mm-hmm. which is fresh water, but it was submerged at about 5,000 years ago by like just the water table rising. Oh, and so what? there was in the 90s um, work done on stone tools in context underwater. Um, so that's yeah. not marine. It's not the, that is published, um, mm. but that's not marine continental shelf. So that's where our one was like different in that we've right. got this. Yeah. But the reason people haven't, that being said, there could be and should be really, in my opinion, a lot more work mm. that has been done. Um, so partly it's because, well, it is entirely, I think that people haven't looked really. People yeah. have, but like there hasn't been big intensive surveys. Um, yeah. People have been looking for ages. People have been writing about this as an important part of Australian archaeology mm. since the 70s or the 60s or probably beforehand. Mm. Um, and Aboriginal people have been talking about this since mm. like white people arrived at the very least in um, Western Australia where they mm. originally told um, the colonists that Rottnest used to be connected um, yeah. to the mainland. Yeah. So it's something that's, as far as we can tell, in Aboriginal memory in all places in Australia that sea level rise, Mm. Um, which is, again, pretty wild. That is a very, very old story and incredible that people do genuinely seem to be able to remember that. Yeah, the oral histories um, of Mm. Indigenous Australians is, it's amazing. Mm. And when scientifically tested, it holds up. That's not like, obviously, whether or not they hold up to scientific testing doesn't value or devalue them Mm. um but as a scientist i'm super excited yeah the fact Mm. that they do seem to line up and what that tells me and what that tells a lot of other really good scientists is that well me and then also good scientists not other good scientists (laughs) i'm sure um is that we're we just haven't been listening well enough and that i think if we had been listening to traditional owners in these places listening when Mm. um claims for native title or claims for the importance of things in sea country as it's called um that we would have picked this up a lot sooner it would have been a much clearer because people don't go oh out there there was something they're like this place and this place and this place yeah yeah Um, these places are important and they're important for a wide range of reasons like Mm current fishing all the way back to those they were submerged lands so i think people haven't listened to that enough but also looking underwater is super expensive like it's, mm. it's eight or ten times more expensive would than you say it's spenny on land it's spenny <laughs> just as the kids would say um so yeah it's it's been hard and given that it's not ever been found before people were kind of like oh yeah maybe it got washed away by the waves oh it's probably a lot of sand oh it's hard to find all the things which are absolutely true mm-hmm. and so what we're hoping is that after demonstrating that those sites can survive in the australian context whatever that means mm. it's that um like people now suddenly are aware um and we know that people in the government and industry are all now like trying to understand what this means for legislation or what this means Mm -hmm. for resource projects, the Northwest Shelf being full of um, natural gas. Uh, So there's like pipelines going in and Mm. all sorts of development and industry and everyone's interested. Um, And a lot of people all over, even when they're in everyone in government, people in resource sectors Mm. and obviously Aboriginal groups all do care about this heritage 
Um, so people do want to mm-hmm. make sure it's not just being needlessly destroyed. No yeah. one wants that. Well, that's, um, that's good. Even that's... the most cynical, but like, it's, no one wants it. Yeah, you know? okay. That's that's so, a relief to hear because, I don't it's, know. It is good. Humans um, can be not great sometimes, so. Absolutely. And so it's complicated and I won't go into it. Um, yeah. And some people want to, like, there's different incentives in different places, but it is good to hear that most people have responded. I've been like, mm. Oh, we need to do something about this because yeah. it's obvious, especially after what happened at Jukun Gorge um, with the PKKP people mm. um, losing such an important site. Um, the people were at through the last ice age and that was the really significant. Now um, people, I think all over Australia are super aware that we mm. don't want to lose these sites yeah, and that they need some form of protection and, it, you'd be hard pressed to find anyone across any part of the political or economic yeah. spectrum that would disagree. Yeah, that's um, good. So, knowing you, you, yeah, it's hard to say that not knowing or not having an awareness of these sites is ever a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> you should always be informed in what you do. Mm. Um, so now we're hoping that there's the interest there. We've proven that it's possible that these sites survive. Therefore maybe the Australian Research Council or maybe someone else or maybe industry or someone, whoever ends up funding universities will Mm. start funding this work. People Mm. can start looking more. And the more people look, the more people will find. Yeah, yeah. Um, So I hope that is a... (laughs) Yeah, good answer to the first half. Then the second half of the question. (laughs) The scary bit. Of like, does this change everything? Or, Or like just, you know, if all we have is based on you know, very, very inland stuff, mm. does mm. that, and, and you know, it's possible, like, is it safe to assume that there was also a large population living around the coast and do we, you know, has the whole thing been turned upside down with this whole, like, I don't know, you might not find anything that's particularly different to what inland sites have told us, but... Mm. Um, I think so. I think I I wouldn't never say that the what we we don't know anything because people there there is an amazing amount that has been understood from inland sites. Yeah, and like yeah, even yeah. on Morajuga at the time at twenty two thousand when it was one hundred and sixty kilometers inland, mm. there is marine shells there yeah. that people have brought presumably. So like people on the coast were connected. Um, economically, socially, yeah. and culturally to people living inland. So we oh, do. That's so have, interesting. I love that. amazing. People forget that people were walking all over this continent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I d- um, and I do forget that. I did forget that. I just that's. Hmm. I'm like, oh, 160 like just as k's. Much as we like, love to travel around the country. Yeah, but they didn't have so motorbikes. Did they. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they had song lines, and so they're probably more effective often. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> navigating. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like people were moving through that landscape. So we do have glimpses. Of yeah, these, yeah, yeah. These groups, but. I think we're missing an enormous part of the record. And I think that the fact it's like a third more of the landmass doesn't even begin your right to capture mm. what that is. Because so like I, I did some fun, some fun stats the other day to try mm. to, this is not a Just for fun. study. This is me <laughs> messing with stuff in R. Mm. Um, but that if you increase sea level by another 120 meters, which is mm-hmm. not projected to happen, but if you do it for an intellectual episode, um, exercise, mm-hmm. like some of the biggest city, one of the biggest cities in Western Australia ends up being like Kalgoorlie <laughs> um, yeah. and like Norseman, I think, like quite small cities. And yeah. so if you were to take the current, I think it's about 70% or 80% of Australians live on the coast um, yeah. at the moment. Um, within that like 120 metre 
that's where or like yeah, 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 people yeah. live on the coast. So if you take the population that currently lives above 120 meters, yeah, and then you multiply that by like, or you you correct for that 0.8 difference, you end up with a population in Western Australia of about 80,000 people at most. Right. Um, which I think, or my last check, is not quite <laughs> right. <laughs> We're up around two and a half million people yeah. in Western Australia. So yeah. Yeah. I I think that, yes, it, it, the archaeology that has been done inland is amazing and can tell us amazing things because people have always been thinking about that issue. Yeah. But I think at the end of the day, as a scientist, without that record... Yeah. Given that you're missing the like vast majority in a highly data. biased data set, yeah. then yeah. you're running into you it's insurmountable. It's mm. absolutely like if you want a proper, really complete model of what was happening, not only in Australia, but in the whole world. Like mm. how did people get to North America? Did they mm. walk over the Beringia Land Bridge? Mm. How were people and even Neanderthals acting in Europe? Because mm. like a lot of Neanderthals lived on what is now the North Sea in these beautiful productive yeah. plains. Yeah. People walked to Tasmania. That's how they got there. And yeah, that's, that's why. Yeah. Wild. So people walked from Papua New Guinea to here, but not from Indonesia. They would have had to take a boat for about mm. five days. Um, mm. There were different human species living in Indonesia. Like all of these big things yeah. that we're getting slivers of evidence from. And we can do a lot with those. There's yeah. an incredible amount of work, but I just think that, Without finding those sites, you're missing you're missing the first landing sites in Australia yeah. where people came over. Um, presumably thousands of people mm. sixty thousand years ago coming across in order to get the current like genetic mix and population and language mix we have. Yeah. Um, not an accident. Five days, a thousand people at least over many many years. We don't have any physical evidence for that because it's all a long way underwater. Mm. You're just not going to understand what's going on really. Yeah. What has been done really interestingly is work on outer fringing islands. So the Great Barrier Reef is in this exact same situation. Yeah. Um, in that it was once land um, yeah. really yeah. recently and people are doing really cool work on the islands, on yeah. the very outer islands to reconstruct some of that record. So it's not to say it isn't there. It's there on land so you can dig it and they're yeah. finding it. And then on Murujuga, they're also looking on outer islands. Yeah. Um, but once you get to that like if people moved around the coast and people populated Australia around the coast, like we think they probably mm. did, yeah. then we've never seen those coastlines. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's a, a scientific problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I think it's a big deal. I think it's worth looking. I know it's very hard, but like we just have yeah. to. No, I I agree. I, you've convinced me. Take all, <laughs> all the money that I have. I'll fund a project. So any archaeologist listening, go qualify as a diver, please, and <laughs> let's get you in the water. Um, <laughs> Come on. Yeah. Let's get you in. Let's get you, <laughs> you trained up. Budding archaeologists, um, get in contact even, with Pat. You know, they'll set you If set you, you can't do any, like, diving stuff, I think, you know, the future is bright when it comes to the exploration of underwater and these um, – previously unreachable places just with things like drone technology mm. and that kind of thing. Like you see so much mm. about drones in the air. I, I see no reason why I haven't looked into it myself, but why <laughs> underwater, underwater drones, drones yeah. and like drones instead of submarines and that kind of thing, you know, unmanned devices mm. and the, the, the technology around that is mm. only getting bigger and better and smarter. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Definitely, I oh. imagine help Hyped the research as. in future years. Yeah, I say that. Uh, yes, you're absolutely yeah. right. I say someone <laughs> probably should give the qualifier there that 
on this project, I didn't even dive. Um, mm. <laughs> like there is plenty of room for people who are like pilots or just archaeologists on land who want to do statistics or GIS or anything. People like, who just like thinking. Who just like thinking or whatever. It's all there. And we, so yeah. It, I feel like this has become a recruitment ad for archaeology. Anyone. You don't have to be a diver, but also <laughs> become a diver because it's lots of fun if you're into that. Oh dear. Um, yeah. But I mean, also, like, if you're going to be working around these beautiful parts of Australia that are just so nice to recreationally mm. dive in anyway, you might as well do some science while you're there, right? Yeah. Like, there's whales in the Dampier Archipelago. There's oh. everything. It's just beautiful. Um, but also, I just want to quickly touch on like Murujuga and sea level and why mm-hmm. that's such an important link is that, like, if you look at the art, this like world famous, hopefully soon to be world heritage listed art, mm. you know that when I was talking about before how like it's bright white. Yeah. And the mm-hmm. fa- the rest of the faces are these beautiful deep red. Well, yeah. over time, those the bright white fades, it weathers, and it mm-hmm. slowly becomes more like that dark red of the rest of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we think a lot of the art, given on how old, how weathered it is, mm. that it doesn't take hundreds of years or thousands of years to weather like that. It takes tens of thousands of years mm. to become the same color as Boy. the rock. So we think a lot of that art is potentially 40,000, 50,000 years old when the regional evidence start when people first arrived. We think that some of the faces that are in Murujuga are the oldest human faces that we can find drawn on the planet. Not the first ones that were made. We don't know when art was or what art is really. Yeah, um, yeah. (laughs) That's a whole other. That's a whole other question. What is art? But (laughs) no. What survives is these things. And the face is the same color as the rock. You've got thylacine that went extinct thousands of years on the mainland. Um, yeah. Like way before they went extinct in Tasmania. You've got them in the art. Oh. There, people drawing them. Um, That's amazing. A really cool thing happens and you notice it as you walk around more and there's been some great studies on this where the oldest art and the stuff that has faded the most is pictures of people and then it's pictures of terrestrial fauna. It's kangaroos and emus and thylacine. Yeah. Mm. Um, but then as it gets younger, the art changes. And it changes into having sea turtles and whales and fish. Oh, as it gets more, no. As the sea level rises. So this is why somewhere like Murujuga is so important to the people of Murujuga, but also should be important to every Australian and all of it. It's just like documented the whole transition. It's that. It's it's, It's human brains. It's creating art, doing something that is so inherently human, which is... It's putting, the closest you'll get to being able to do a like psych scan or a brain autopsy of mm. people at the time and the culture and the history. It's just like a record. Yeah, it's the you're seeing someone's experience. They're like yeah. perceptual reality from so far back in time that they lived oh. on an unrecognizable planet to the one that you live on with different creatures and different environments, different sea level, different weather patterns. Um, different languages and cultures yeah. and different species of human at the time when people were drawing those. so wild. And, yeah. Holy shit. So I, oh you can watch people think about and feel and understand the changing climate of the planet through thousands and tens of thousands of years. In watch these this road visit. trip just get higher and higher on my, like, priority <laughs> bucket list. Like, just, like, the second. Hot damn. The second that the borders, borders open. Um, only if it's safe to do so. If it's safe to do so, yes. Not of for any other particular stupid reason. Um, I will hop on my motorbike, yeet myself over to WA, <laughs> and we can chuck some tents on our backs and drive up. Sound like plan, Matt? 
that honestly sounds like a dream. That's okay. Come in as well if I'm welcome, please. I'd love to. Of course. <laughs> do you have a motorbike or do we need to provide? I didn't have a I might need to get a motorbike. Yeah. Well. That's all right. You've got time to get your license. Yeah. <laughs> Kate's going to be in or, Melbourne for you a know. bit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. I mean, I love Melbourne. I do. I'm just a little over it right yeah. now. It's all right. It's good. A little homestuck. Just a little, just a little, you know, envious that you guys get to hug each other. And see another <laughs> human smile. Like if I hang out with an, I went for a walk with a friend this morning because um, you're allowed to socially distance, go for a walk together, but with your masks on. And we were just talking mm. about how like one of the hardest parts about it, you get to see someone else, but they're in a mask and don't mm. underestimate how much you miss smiles. Like, and yeah. also hugs. We were like, I was like, I just want to give you a hug right now, but just like talking and communicating and like you see it over zoom but that's not the same mm. and seeing it in real of life course. but in real life yeah. there's a mask and it's just you know it kind of is emotionally getting to us more than we realize oh it is yeah. it's exhausting um so I just spit over it but you know that's that's not me criticizing the extension of the restrictions <laughs> yes. because 100 percent the right thing to do mm. yeah doesn't but mean it don't just, suck you know, doesn't it mean it don't suck. That that is a natural consequence <laughs> yeah. of these kinds of restrictions, which is why it's so yeah. important that people maintain these mm. like social distancing things and masks things. Because the more mm. people do that, the sooner it the will sooner be, over. be over, and then the sooner you can get back to seeing smiles and hugging. Yeah, people exactly. And going on motorcycles to see so the beautiful please, parts of Australia. Do the right mm. thing, friends and that's fam. right. That's my we'll public that's COVID my message in there. COVID public service announcement. I could not agree uh, more. Yeah, not not to be political, but just to be like. <laughs> Human. It's not political. Human. It's being like, Jesus, don't be a shit cunt. We're in a pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Oh, fuck. yeah. Yeah. Don't be a shit cunt. That's our the official message of today's episode. But we do also have a listener question that we should shuffle along to. The listener question was an interesting one. An interesting one. We mm-hmm. got sent in from Leanne. Why do bruises change colour? Which is, like, Ah. actually a really Mm. good point and, like, actually very relevant to my life right now because I have a massive bruise on my leg. I always have massive bruises on my legs, though. You're one of those people that just wakes up and you're covered in bruises and you're like, what the fuck? I was lying still. Yeah, like, but also I walk into things a lot and, you know, this particular bruise is from Hondo, my dog, my husky, Mm. my love of my life. He has a very, very strong skull. (laughs) Um, It has crashed. (laughs) It has smashed my car windscreen before. He was fine. Oh, my God. The car windscreen was not. (laughs) Um, And... Yes. Yeah, so anyway, he headbutt me very hard in the in the shin the other day. Ooh. He did a really enthusiastic like whip his head round to see something exciting behind him and oh. like collided Ooh. with my leg. And it's yeah, I can feel that. Yeah, it's currently in the like greeny blue sort of like gross kind of color. Anyway, and so mm. yeah, I'm like that's a, that's a really interesting point because you know as far as what I knew about bruises, right? We all kind of know, or we might not all know, but you know, some people might know that a bruise is is essentially internal bleeding, right? Mild internal bleeding. It's when you whack, there's some sort of like thing hits you and it breaks the capillaries that are in your, um, I was going to say arm, but, you know, whichever body part gets bruised. So your capillaries, they're the, you know, the tiny little blood vessels. So they're not quite the arteries or the veins. They're kind of the, the communication channels in between and they're where the nutrients gets delivered to the tissue, right? And yeah these precious, precious little vessels of blood, you just like smack them, break them, tear them, destroy them. Um, And the blood leaks out. The red blood cells in particular 
leak out into the all the little nooks and crannies between your skin cells and other tissue and whatever. And that is why the bruise is normally kind of red at first. Um, mm. is because it's the specifically your hemoglobin in your red blood cells. So your hemoglobin mm. has got iron in it as its main kind of thing. And what it does in the blood is it carries oxygen around the blood to the body, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And so this is this is the the big boy that, you know, essentially what happens is a bruise change changes color. It's the body taking this hemoglobin and like breaking it down into different bits and pieces. And in those different di- bits and pieces are different colors. So essentially, number one, your bruise will start to go blue, purple, like within the first day kind of thing. That's the first color. Mm-hmm. And that is the white blood cells coming in and breaking down the hemoglobin into heme, which is the bit with the iron, and globin, oh. which is just like oh. a protein. So globin. I didn't know that hemoglobin was oh. like a conglomerate. I know, right? Word. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So simple sometimes the way, like I shit on nomenclature. Oh God, I can't say words. Nomenclature (laughs) in science a lot. Um, But this makes sense. Uh, Hemoglobin Mm. is made of heme and globin. And so globin is the protein and it gets broken down into its amino acids, carried off by the white blood cells, happy days out of there. And the heme is kind of the like deoxygenated purpley blue thing that you get. Then what happens is the iron inside the heme gets kind of like mm-hmm. taken out and converted by an enzyme in the body, convert, converted into something called hemoceridian. No, I've definitely mm-hmm. said that wrong. Hemociderin? Oh, no. This Hemocid- is why... Hemociderin. Is, is that a villain on Doctor Who? <laughs> yeah, well, all of these words, right? I was like, I'm going to write them down because they all sound like characters to me. Like, they all form these... So we've got, you know, Hemociderin. He's he's the brown guy. Like, he's definitely a villain on Doctor Who, but he's, like, a brown rogue, right? Like, he is hiding in a cave and he's got, like, a... You know, he's brown is the point, but and he's currently hidden and he's not important and he's just chilling out there mm. in the body. Then what happens to the rest of the heme, the non-iron part, is it gets converted by an enzyme, gets broken down into something called Billy Verdon. Now, Billy Verdon, to me, sounds like a character uh, in this cartoon who's got, like... It sounds like you're, it's either, like, the goofy sidekick or the protagonist. No, so he's the, like, he's, like, the angsty, like, protagonist with green hair because he's, like... And he's kind of a little bit punk because he's green and your, your bruise is green. It's actually a type of bile, which is why it's green. But we're, run, we're oh, running nice. with Billy Verdon, the, like, punk rocker protagonist with green hair. Um, then what happens a couple days later is the Billy Verdon gets converted into Billy Rubin and Billy Rubin sounds like, you know, Billy Rubin, they cute the little guy 100. with yellow hair. <laughs> Sorry. That was, they won the hottest 100 a few yeah, years ago. Probably. B- Billy right? Rubin is definitely an indie <laughs> solo artist. I love like. that. Do they have yellow hair? Because they make your bruise turn yellow. Um, of course they have yellow hair. What yeah. other color would it be? And it is definitely not naturally so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Billy Rubin. So then what happens is your bruise is is yellow, right? Because your Billy Verdon, your green boy gets broken down, gets turned into your yellow boy. Then yellow boy, Billy Rubin, gets sent off to boarding school. I mean, the liver um, (laughs) to get broken down and we excrete it and, you know, all of that. So then what happens is your bruise turns brown because if you remember, we had our Doctor Who villain, our hemocytorin, uh, Mm. (laughs) hanging out. So he was hanging out, but you couldn't really see him. But as the, like, Billy Rubin and um, Billy Verdon get, you know, taken out and whatever removed from the site 
what's left is the brown. And so that's why mm. it's brown last. And then right. even though it kind of is one of the first things that's generated, it just also hangs around the longest. And then your body will slowly reabsorb that as well. And, you know, the capillaries will build themselves together. And yeah, so that's the story of bruises and why they change color. So Leanne, I hope mm. that that sates your curiosity enough. Um, and thank that's you for sending so in the it question. Well chosen, Kate, because um, the reason all the rocks and Marajuka change color as well is also is, the iron. Yeah. yeah I was so, just thinking that. Like yeah. the reason that Australia has that beautiful quintessential red soil is the yep. amazing amounts of iron deposits in our in our entire land. Isn't it mm. crazy that like so iron is a thing that's so applicable to like biology, right? Like the it's a very important thing in our body. Um it's mm. important in, you know, archaeological things, geographical things. Um, and also I was just fully listening to a lecture about binary star systems and how mm -hmm. when like these stars can exist, you know, in pairs essentially, and when they collapse, they form the different elements and it's different types of stars create different elements and certain ones in these binary systems can create iron and it all just comes from, it's all stardust anyway. Wild, right? Like wow. science is all just <laughs> no, no, no. Matt, go home. Um, you ruined the vibe. How Kate long were you how holding we're all on connected? To that? <laughs> Only a couple of seconds. I couldn't keep it in for long. <laughs> oh gosh. Anyway, with that, thank you for emailing in that uh, question, Leanne. And if you guys. Listeners, dear listeners, I haven't forgotten that you're there. If you want to email in or listen a question, don't forget you can always do that. Email us curiosityrat at gmail.com. That'll get into our inbox and I'll do my best to look it up and give it a sneaky answer. And so thank you again, Patrick, for joining us today and telling oh, us all pleasure. about like, oh my God, I learned so much and my mind is so just like expanded. And I'm just like, you guys saw me. I was like half asleep at the start oh, of this episode. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like I've had my, my, my caffeine is knowledge. <laughs> I don't know. I just get enthusiastic and I just, and if nothing I got the else, adrenaline it's just now. like further like solidified for me, like how privileged I feel to live in this amazing country that is mm. Australia. That just has such a rich history mm. and culture mm. behind it and geography mm. and landscape and so much more to explore. Like mm. I want to do so much traveling, but before I see any of the world, I want to see all of Australia first because it yeah. just has so much, mm. so much to offer. So if you loved everything that Patrick had to say today, want to find more of his stuff, want to find out, you know, more about the cool stuff that you're doing and you know, how do, how do people find you? Let us know. Um, Drop your handles. I'm, I'm on Twitter. <laughs> Yep. As Pad Morrison, P-A-D-M-O-R-R-I-S-O-N. Amazing. I like to retweet a lot of fun archaeology. That's what I mostly do. And occasionally, I, love that. I think my last original tweet was a Taylor Swift joke. So oh, if you so like that, good. I'm here for that. That's good. So, like my Twitter feed is also just like a very healthy balance of um, you know, musical theater enthusiasm and <laughs> science. <laughs> it's That's it. What more can you want? Exactly. Um, amazing. Well, we'll chuck your, we'll chuck all those links down in the description so you can go them, go there, find Pat. Um, we, did you also want to plug your Instagram? Oh yeah. My Instagram, I am Patrick's ego. Mm -hmm. Little, little comment on social media. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it yep. was made years ago that I haven't changed. <laughs> go um, and stroke yeah. Patrick's ego. Give him oh, a follow. Um, <laughs> lots of, and if you want to. Lots of archaeology pics on there. So love that's that. good fun. 
And as always, if you don't follow us, you can find us on Insta or Twitter at Curiosity Rat or on Facebook, Curiosity Killed the Rat. Check us out. Give us a cheeky like. Um, and we will catch you guys next time. Thank you so much for tuning in again. And thanks, Pat, again for coming on. Thank you for having me. See you later. Curiosity. 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 Kill the rat.